Welcome and thanks for joining us today on the Abundance Podcast. We'll go ahead and get started in prayer. God, you're awesome. I just want to take a moment to recognize how good you are and how faithful you are. And I'm just thankful, Lord, how awesome it is that you put together a plan where your spirit could be with all of us all at the same time. It's amazing. But I thank you, Lord, that your spirit is with us and that he's ministering to each one right where we're at. Lord, go beyond my words and minister our words specifically to each individual that's listening, Lord. Thank you, and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're in part seven of this series of which I'm calling David's Journey. And this episode is called Saul on the Hunt. So today we're going to continue looking at the life of David. And again, the purpose is to hear the different examples from David's life. And even though they don't directly apply, you know, meaning, you know, I'm not, I'm not expecting you to go out and literally kill a nine to 10 foot tall person like David did, like when he defended the Jewish people from Goliath and the Philistines, you know, I'm not suggesting you go out and try to duplicate that. But what we're doing is we're looking at the principles or the rules to live by, if you will, that we can take from this story and directly apply to the circumstances that each one of us encounters. One of our foundational scriptures for this series has been Romans 15.4. And it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So David's life is recorded to spring up hope within us. Now, we've covered a lot so far. Last time we read till the end of 1 Samuel chapter 18, and today we're going to pick back up in chapter 21. Now, I would encourage you, if you've been following along in this series, to go back and read chapters 19 and 20 on your own. There's a lot of good stuff in there, and we're skipping over a decent amount, some of which is where in chapter 19, verses 9 through 10, Saul is back to his old ways of throwing a spear at David. You know, so if I remember right, I think that's the third time. (laughs) There's also David's wife, and her name was Michal, letting him down a window to escape Saul's messengers from killing him. Some of you may recognize that's where she tells the men that David is sleeping, and I think she might have said that he wasn't feeling good, and they go back to Saul, and Saul's like, kill him right where he sleeps. You know, that sort of thing. Also, there's the interactions between Saul and his son, Jonathan, and how Jonathan and David had basically become best friends. And Jonathan went on to help David so that he wasn't killed by his dad. There's the time where David pretended to be insane. (laughs) I mean, literally, you know, like a madman, where he was scratching at the doors of a gate and he drooled like an animal in order to try and escape the king of the land that he was in so that he wouldn't kill him. And really, that sounds like me in my 20s when I got hammered drunk a lot. (laughs) Only instead of scratching at doors, I would actually kick them in. (laughs) And then I wouldn't remember it in the morning except for a door being kicked open. But anyways, that's a whole nother story. But the moral of the story is, God is good and he's done a good work in me because I'm not who I used to be. (laughs) Now before we get into chapter 22, where I want to begin... There's a situation from chapter 21 I need to mention. 
and I'm not going to get too far into it, but I want to mention it so that you're aware of it, and I believe it'll help us with what we're going to look at next. And that's where David was on the run from King Saul, and he makes a pit stop and sees Amalek the priest. And while he was there, David ends up taking five loaves of bread, which were supposed to be used as bread set aside for God. And that's a whole different subject that we're not going to go into today with explaining all that. But real quick, that's actually something that Jesus made reference to in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 4. So David takes these five loaves of bread for he and his men. And also while he's there, he asks Ahimelech if he has any weaponry. And he tells him that Goliath's sword was actually being stored there and that he could take it. So David did. So here we go. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So what we see here is that all of David's family comes to him. His father Jesse, his brothers, which just to be clear, there's no indication that this doesn't include those same brothers that ridiculed him and told him he was prideful and nosy and that he should go back and watch his father's sheep, you know, that sort of thing. I believe they were included. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but in verse 3, it even mentions his mom which I believe is the first time that his mom is mentioned in here. So the moral story is, all of his family is there. And why did they come to him? They came to him for protection. And again, we're looking at the life of David to try and use practical application for ourselves. Okay, Because I believe this really shows how David truly was a man with a heart for God. He wasn't holding any grudges. He didn't push them away now that he was the one calling the shots. They came to him for help, and he knew that they needed them, and so he protected them regardless of what they'd done in the past. And really, how many of us are willing to do that? To look at the bigger picture and not allow our emotions to dominate us. I'm not saying we have to forget the past. And yes, there are guardrails, okay? If someone's been abusive to you or something like that, is it wise to let them back in your life? Well, probably not. And, and the only reason I would say probably is unless the Holy Spirit guides you in that direction. There was someone from my life that I knew that God had told me to get away from that individual. And there was a time several years down the road where I hadn't talked to that individual, but out of the blue, they were going to be in town. And my first reaction was to not even answer their phone call. But I just felt like the Lord was saying, answer the call. So I did. And that individual, you know, like I said, was in town. And I was like, hey, I'm going to church. Yeah, you can. we can meet up, come to church with me. And he did. And that afternoon, I actually got to lead him to Christ. Now, I don't believe I've even talked to him since. And that doesn't mean that God is asking me to go and become good friends with that individual anymore. No. But the point is, yes, there are times where we put up guardrails and we protect ourselves. And those around us, you know, if we got kids or whatever the case may be. But there may be a time where God gives us the green light to allow those people back in our lives for a season. You know, whether that's a short season or a long season. You know, I, I don't know. I don't determine that. 
But with David, he was able to not hold a grudge and he was willing to help his brothers who ridiculed him and, of course, his mom and dad. So my question is, are we willing to be used by God even if the situation doesn't make sense to us? Let's use an example like where you and your spouse or you and your kids or whatever the case may be, where you disagree on something. Who knows? Maybe you even had an argument. <laughs> oh no, not an argument. <laughs> you know, you know. I, I know the church world over the last 40 years, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old, so I mean, as long as I can remember, the church world has developed this type of falsehood where people can't acknowledge that they struggle with things, okay? That they have arguments with, with friends or loved ones, you know, that sort of thing. Like if you have an argument that you're now, quote unquote, less of a Christian, <laughs> or maybe you even cross this imaginary line and now you've, quote unquote, lost your salvation. And really, all of that is just grounded in this works mentality that tries to justify your right standing with God in relation to the good things that you do. And that's a lie. Your works don't give you a right standing with Jesus, okay? Your faith in him does. And that's made available not because of what you do or what you don't do. It's made available solely by his grace and because of what he did through his death, burial, and resurrection. You and I had no part to play in it other than receiving by faith what Jesus already made available. All that to say, it's okay to acknowledge <laughs> that you don't have everything figured out. You know, no one does. And there may be times where you have an argument with a spouse or a child. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean it has to be that way. Okay, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've already been given the fruit of the Spirit. We don't need to beg and plead and ask God for more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, you know, so on and so forth. We just have to use what we've already been given. He has already equipped us to be able to walk in love and all the fruits of the Spirit. But for our example, let's say you're involved in an argument with someone you love. And maybe, just maybe, there were some choice words exchanged, you know, or I guess, you know, maybe some not-so-choice words, however you want to look at it. But regardless, when push comes to shove, those we say we love know they can turn to us when trouble comes their way. Just like how David's family knew that he would protect them because he was a man with a heart for God. Now, I'm not saying that David had a terrible relationship with his family. I'm just pointing out that it was, you know, the same brothers that were picking on him and all that sort of thing. And now they are running to him for protection. And just to be clear, in this circumstance, you know, just to drive home the point, this wasn't a situation where they were just trying to save money on a vacation you know, so they went to David and they, you know, tagged along with him. You know, it wasn't that sort of a situation. They were fleeing for their lives. They knew King Saul wanted to kill David. And if they stayed where they were, he could have either killed them or they could have been used as like a hostage situation, if you will. You know, hey, David, I got your mom and dad, you know, do this or else, you know, that sort of thing. So Saul would have probably leveraged David's family in order to hurt him. So what I want to point out is that not only does David have such an abundance of God's favor on his life that his family comes to him with minimal effort on his part, but also we see that an entire group of people come to him. 
And in that group of people were 400 men who actually would end up being the ones that fought for David. Now, these verses mention that this group of men weren't necessarily the most desirable group to have. (laughs) It mentions that they were in distress, they were in debt, and they were discontented. And for me, I know what the words distress and debt mean, but I, you know, opened up a dictionary and looked up what the word discontented means. It means to be dissatisfied, especially with one's circumstances. So anyways, all that to say, these men probably wouldn't have been David's first picks in the natural. But isn't that just who God uses? <laughs> he loves using those who others see as unqualified. And the truth is, he's never actually had a qualified person working for him yet. What I believe this example is giving us is I believe it's giving us a shadow of Jesus. And what I mean by that, if you're not familiar with that expression, is that in the Old Testament, you'll come across examples or you know shadows of things to come. Now, a shadow isn't the real thing, but it replicates or gives an example of something that'll be coming soon. You know, I'm sure there's a better way to explain that. But an example of this would be how in the Old Testament, the Israelite people were told to sacrifice a lamb for Passover, and that lamb that was slain was a shadow of Jesus who would eventually come and be our eternal sacrifice. Another example or shadow in the Old Testament was in the life of Abraham. Abraham was willing to offer up his son as a sacrifice to God, and this acted as a shadow of what God the Father actually did with his son Jesus. And there's many more out there. So I believe this crowd of misfits may have been an Old Testament shadow of how each one of us have to come to Jesus. These people came to David because they needed him for their protection, they needed his guidance, they were far from perfect, but yet, just like David received these people, that's how Jesus receives us, just as we are. We come to him as sinners, he restores us, and as a result, he can use those who have a desire to live a life for him. 1 Samuel 22, verses 3-4 through 4. Then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you, till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So again, David looks out for his family and keeps them in another country to keep them safe. Next we see in verse 5, a prophet tells David to go to Judah, so he listens and goes to that area. Verses 6 through 8. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gebeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there is not one of you who is sorry for me, or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So first, I'm seeing that King Saul is acting pretty paranoid here. (laughs) It mentions how, again, he had a spear in his hand, which, to me, that shows that he's paranoid, because it's not like the situation with David and Goliath, where the Philistines are out there, and at any time, if they wanted to, they could just attack them. You know, no, King Saul 
was pursuing David. So he didn't need to have his spear in his hand because there was nobody coming against him. But here he is sitting with his spear in his hand. We also see he had all of his servants around him. And yet he's talking to them in a way where it's almost like he's trying to convince them to stay loyal to him and not jump ship over to David's side. But he's doing it in such a way where it seems like he's basically trying to ridicule them into seeing things his way. Almost like he's trying to buy the people into doing what he wants. (laughs) That kind of sounds familiar. (laughs) That's what's happening today. Where politicians are trying to use free stuff to basically buy someone's vote. Saul said, Will David give you fields and vineyards and make you captain over hundreds and thousands? Basically implying that he'd do that. You know, I can do all these things for you, so... You know, David's not going to do that, so you better stay with me. You know, that sort of thing. But there's another way I believe we can look at this. I also want us to see from verse 7 how King Saul was deceived into thinking he was the source of everything he had. Regardless of the fact that Saul knew, you know, God had already told him, but Saul knew that God had declared he and his descendants would be removed from being king. So even though that took place, he lost sight of the fact that everything he had was because of God, which is the total opposite of David. Earlier I read it, but I didn't really expound on it. At the tail end of verse 3, when David asked the king of Moab to allow his parents to stay in his country, David ended that verse by saying, Please let my father and mother come here with you, and here it is, till I know what God will do for me. Okay. David only wanted what God had for his life. I'm sure I'll talk about this in another episode, but David had a similar situation like this happen in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And this is where he's fleeing the city from his son Absalom. Now in a nutshell, others wanted David to take the Ark of the Covenant with him. In 2 Samuel 15 verses 25 through 26, it says, Then the king, you know, which is David at this time, you know, right now in the story where we're at, David is not the king, but in 2 Samuel he is. The king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good to him. David's mentality was, If God's done using me, then praise God. But if he decides to restore me to a position of authority, then praise God too. My life is his, okay? It's not mine. Likewise, practically speaking, are we willing to say to God, you know, make me a living sacrifice? Help me be who you need me to be, whether the world would view me as a quote-unquote success or not. I want what you desire for my life, God. How can I serve you? David knew he wasn't the source of anything. It had to be God that would come through. But Saul, he thought he was his own source. And really what I'm describing is pride. And pride cometh before a fall. Next we're going to see that Saul began to show how he felt sorry for himself. And he wanted others' sympathy too. Now, we're going to read verse 8 here in a second. And I'd guess that Saul said it in a manly voice. you know. But when I read it, all I hear is him whining. Verse 8. All of you have conspired against me, and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there's no one who is sorry for me 
or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. <laughs> I was actually dropping my kids off this morning and I broke out an old voice and it took us a couple minutes to figure out why that voice sounded familiar and it was from reading one of their little books at nighttime and having the bad guy sound like a whiny little snot. So anyways, <laughs> why did I share that? I don't know, <laughs> but I did. So anyways, verse eight. So practically speaking here, on this topic of trying to get people to feel sorry for us, you know, really, that's what a lot of psychology tries to get someone to do. And just so you know, I'm not against psychologists, okay? There are a lot of good Christian psychologists out there, but I want to be clear. Yes, there is a time for sharing things. There is a time for confiding in other believers or even a counselor. I'm not encouraging you to be fake and and not share things, you know, just like we kind of already discussed. But when we do open up and talk about the past, it should be done with the purpose of trying to get freed up, trying to move forward and not just running backwards. It's not wise to simply open up old wounds or spew a bunch of junk out just to vent and get it all out. You know, that's what we're told. Just get it all out. No, that's not always good. Sometimes when it's going to be a bunch of garbage that we know is going to come out, sometimes we need to have the discernment and simply shut up. Now, I'm not saying that to be insensitive, okay? And again, I'm not saying you can't open up to people. But there are times when we need to remind ourselves or, you know, if it's somebody else, we can tell them in love that we or they need to toughen up. Again, use discernment, okay? Make sure it's the Holy Spirit that's that's telling you this and not just because you're annoyed or whatever, okay? There is a time to look back and go over things to allow for healing to take place. But there's also a time where we need to guard our tongue toughen up, and keep our minds eternally minded. I mean, just think about Jesus. He's our example. He's about to be crucified, and he tells his disciples before the guards and all them come and take him, he says something along the effect of like, the hour is coming, and the enemy is going to be really trying to get him. So he's not going to say much. (laughs) You know, even Jesus knew that it was going to be wise for him to not open his mouth when people were spitting on him and plucking his beard and and ripping his hair out and punching him and and you know mocking him <laughs> you know i think probably being mocked is probably one of the most underrated things that we look at when we look at the crucifixion you know some of us look at our facebook screens or whatever the case may be twitter I, i'm not that familiar with twitter or x whatever it is called but like you know, sometimes people say things about us just on the internet, on, on these social media platforms, and we can't help but type back at them and that sort of thing and give a response. Well, that's one thing, but to be called right to your face around everyone you know and all these people and have them ridicule you and make up things and, and not defend yourself, okay? You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. Anyways, so again, yes. It's okay to look at things and talk about things with the purpose of trying to get healed up. But there's also a time where we need to guard our tongue and toughen up 
and keep our minds eternally minded. Because the truth is, no matter how difficult a circumstance may be, in the light of eternity, it's just not that important. So the point is, it's not always necessary for us to vomit out negativity and junk out of our mouths. We can choose to focus on the good and the pure and the lovely. And this is a little bit different, but along those same lines, it's important to recognize that when others are consistently bringing excessive amounts of verbal vomit our way, sometimes we need to understand that the reason people keep dumping their junk and all their gossip on us is simply because we're allowing it to happen. It's okay to guard what comes your way by putting a stop to what people are telling you. A pastor I was listening to one time was teaching on this subject and he gave a visual example to the crowd that he was speaking to. He had them make a circle with one hand, you know, kind of where it was up and down, almost like a cup, if you will. And then he told them to take their other hand, you know, which was open, and put it up against the back of it. And I know it's hard to envision it without being able to see me. But what he was describing was putting your hand in the shape of a toilet with the open hand up against it, acting like a toilet seat. And he told them, as long as you keep the seat up, people will keep coming back and putting crap in your toilet. But if you close the lid, you put down that toilet seat, then there won't be a place for them to come and sit anymore. Meaning, if you, in love, put a stop to allowing people to come and gossip and spew out all their doubt and unbelief on you, not only will it be good for you, ultimately it can help them. Because life and death are in the power of the tongue. So if that person doesn't have a place to come and spew out all their junk, either they're going to stop saying it as much, or they're going to have to go and find somebody else who's willing to sit there and listen and get dumped on. So anyways, this pastor used this visual of a toilet seat to help explain his point. And shortly after that, some of those same people who were in there when he was teaching on this were complaining to another individual who also was there that night. And as the gossip and junk was said that those individuals were so accustomed to spewing out, that other individual stopped them (laughs) mid-sentence, put up his hands in the shape of that toilet, and shut the lid, and without saying anything, just walked away. (laughs) And as a result, those other individuals who were gossiping They knew exactly what he meant, and the point was made. And some of you may think, well, you know, that wasn't very nice. No, yes, it was. (laughs) That was in love. It's okay to give correction to people that we love. What wouldn't be love is actually you continuing to let them just spew and just say all that stuff. It's kind of like in an example, if you were on the phone with someone and you knew that up ahead the bridge was out and this person, you knew they had a lead foot and they would have no way of knowing that the bridge was out and they would just drive right off the bridge and and fall to their death and you were on the phone with them, if you were too concerned about offending them and really what you're concerned about is yourself because you're concerned that that individual won't like you anymore. It's all about self. It's all about pride. But if you were more worried about yourself Then you worry about telling that individual, hey, there's no bridge up ahead. Slow down and stop. Then you don't really love that individual. And it's the same thing. We can say all day that we love people. But if we're unwilling to bring correction and to give guidance and say things to people, you know, directed by the Holy Spirit, I I might add, 
If we're unwilling to do that, then we don't truly love them. We love ourselves more than them. Now, all that to say, yes, there is a time to share things, but it needs to be done with the mindset of, I want to move forward. Not just talk about the past just for the sake of talking and bringing up old hurts. And if that's not your goal, then let's do ourselves a favor and keep it between us and God instead of gossiping. Next, we see in verse 9 that a man named Doeg, (laughs) something like that, D-O-E-G, Doeg the Edomite tells King Saul about the priest who helped David. Which, remember, I touched on it briefly to start. Ahimelech the priest gave bread as well as Goliath's sword to David. So we're going to skip ahead to verse 13. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, and that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes out at your bidding, and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father. For your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. Again, we see here King Saul tells a lie and is showcasing paranoia, thinking that Ahimelech, the priest, is working with David to come against him. And I love Ahimelech's response in verse 14. It says, So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house. To me, this is really cool. When we honor God, when living a life for Christ isn't just something we do on Sundays, but it's just who we are every day of the week, people notice it. In this case, David was such a God-honoring man that all those around him knew it. Now, I'm not saying he was a perfect man, but this priest knew his reputation, and that he had reverence and and respect for God, even to the point where he is basically sticking up for David to the king nonetheless. Now, we also see that in verse 15, he explains how he knew nothing about what Saul was accusing him of, which was true. You know, he didn't. And because he had zero knowledge, he asked him not to hold anything against him or his household. But even with all that, He's basically telling the king, hey, David's as faithful as they come. Hasn't he done everything you've asked him? He's gone out and fought for you. He's always been honorable. He's even married your daughter. (laughs) And really, here's kind of the main point of this interaction. Because Ahimelech didn't know what was going on. And even if Ahimelech had inquired of God for David, basically almost like praying for him, he wouldn't have been doing anything wrong because he would have had no reason to think David was doing something that went against what the king would be okay with. And that was just because of the reputation that David had, that he was honorable. But along with that, Ahimelech is making a case for David that's about as clear as day. That is, you know, for someone who hasn't already made up their mind, talking about King Saul. Now that being said, I do believe he was speaking pretty firmly to Saul. You know, he wasn't cowering, I don't believe. But at the same point, I don't believe he was being disrespectful. How did Saul respond? 
verses 16 through 19. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day eighty-five men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Man. There's really no way around it. Saul has just become just a flat-out evil man. (laughs) And there's a lot here I believe can help us out, practically speaking, in our own lives. First, in verse 17, we see that Saul commands his guards to kill Ahimelech and all the priests of the Lord, and they wouldn't do it. And we can take from that. It's important for us to understand that we have a choice with everything we do. No matter if someone's in a position of authority over us, if they tell us to do something that goes against God's word, we're the ones responsible for our decision. There is no, you know, they made me do it when it comes to violating God's word. Okay, we're not children. And I just want to point out, that includes a personal conviction from Holy Spirit with whether or not you should or shouldn't do something. When he ministers something to you directly, You need to obey. And the guards, the servants of Saul, whatever they were called, they knew it. And for us, especially in these last days, we're going to be presented with plenty of opportunities to cower at the face of persecution. And for me at least, when I hear the word persecution, my brain goes right to thinking of like martyrdom, you know, someone being killed for Jesus. And yes, those things aren't just a myth. That sort of thing is happening all around the world as we speak. And if that's you, if you're listening in a country where you're being persecuted and and possibly killed for your faith in Jesus, man, I don't know what to say other than, you know, try to stay eternally minded because, man, great is your reward going to be in heaven. Keep fighting the good fight. But in a situation where persecution isn't to the extent of martyrdom, What about where it's, you know, way more subtle? Where a topic comes up around the proverbial water cooler at work. You know, where people stand around and they talk and the issues of today that have become popular, they they come out. And they're issues that violate God's word. Are we willing to, in love, speak up and defend God? Whether it's issues like homosexuality or transgender issues or you know, the castration of kids or abortion or whatever the case may be. I'm not telling us to be loud and boisterous and, you know, and be mean. That's not what I'm saying at all. Sometimes we're so focused on winning an argument that we're more focused about that than we are about speaking in love. It can be something as subtle as, eh, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's good for kids to give them chemicals to try and change their sex. You know, something, it can be something subtle like that. But make no mistake about it, these final days are like in the days of Noah. So are we willing to lose friends, to lose family members, to lose our job even, to stand up for God? 
Are we willing to speak the truth in love? And here's the truth. (laughs) The truth is offensive. Sometimes the truth will make someone feel uncomfortable. (laughs) And I just heard yesterday how in the United States, they're actually attempting to pass, you know, I don't know if they're technically laws or, you know, how you'd categorize it, but they're trying to pass stuff that says that if you make someone, you know, just feel bad, you know, not not a physical altercation or anything like that, but if you say something that makes someone feel bad, <laughs> you can be fined up to $10,000 and even jailed. It's crazy. So in these last days, are we willing to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ? And the reason I'm bringing it up is because it's something we need to think about before we actually get into that situation. I'm not trying to sound like Debbie Downer, but like something I've thought about is, you know, like this podcast, for example. What if I was told that I couldn't say the name of Jesus and I couldn't teach the things that we're teaching on here? And if I did, that I'd go to jail. You know, would I be willing to do that or would I cower? Now, I see examples in the Bible where we can use wisdom, okay, when Saul was persecuting the church, when Christians were being killed for their faith, I've read in the Bible, in the book of Acts, that they left, you know, they spread out and, and, and actually the persecution of the church actually spread the gospel further. <laughs> the devil's such an idiot. Had he just, you know, allowed it to be confined, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it would have kept going, but <laughs> with the devil using people to persecute the Christians... It actually pushed them out and it spread. But anyways, the point is that what I'm saying is, you know, they didn't always just stand there and get killed. You know, yes, there are times in that you can read about different things where people were martyred and that sort of thing. But I'm saying like, overall, I've read things in the Bible where people protected themselves. They left. Paul himself, when people were trying to kill him and catch him, he escaped through a window in a basket and he left. Okay, so all I'm trying to say is there is wisdom. You know, just because someone wants to persecute us doesn't mean we have to just sit there and and say, here I am and wait two days and allow them to come kill us. I'm not saying that that's wise. But what I am saying is, are we willing that when a situation arises and we find ourselves in the middle of it, are we willing to be persecuted for Christ? And that's just something we need to think about. Next, we see King Saul tells Doeg the Edomite, which was the person who was responsible for tattling on David in the first place, he tells him to kill the priests. And he does. And it was a total of 85 men. And then on top of that, the city of Nob is destroyed as well. And that was the men, the women, the children, the babies, and even the animals too. What a contrast to what we discussed in the first couple episodes of this series in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you remember, that's where God had instructed King Saul through the prophet Samuel to kill the Amalekites for what they had done to the Israelite people as they came out of Egypt. And on the surface, it may seem like it's the same thing, but I can assure you it's not. Okay, go back and listen to either part one or part two. I don't remember exactly which one it was for a better explanation of that. But what we saw was that King Saul previously didn't follow through with what God had instructed him to do in chapter 15. But now... He annihilates all the priests in an entire city because of his paranoia towards David. 
Actually, I guess I need to correct myself. He didn't kill everyone. Verses 20 through 23 tell us that one of Ahimelech's sons escapes and comes and tells David what took place. And verse 23 tells us that David told him, Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. So again, we see David looking out for someone he really didn't need to. And David had so much confidence in the fact that what was spoken over him by Samuel, that God would be faithful to do it. And what was said about him was that he one day would be the next king. Even though his current circumstance was him running and hiding (laughs) from King Saul. Likewise, it's important for us to recognize that no matter what our current circumstances are, it's God's will for you to walk in abundance in every area of your life. And the truth is, even if your circumstances are bad in the natural, you have the ability to walk above your circumstances. Now, I'm not talking about trying to be numb to them or you know trying to ignore your circumstances, but you can walk in such a way that you know God is for you. So who can be against you? That even though these circumstances are bad, I know that I know that I know God is going to turn this around for the good because I trust in him and I'm diligently seeking to live a life for him. You can be like Paul, who when they said, you know, we need to shut him up, so let's throw him in prison. And he said, oh, praise God. And he just had a great attitude the whole time he was in prison. (laughs) And he brought everybody in that prison to know Jesus. You know, then they said, you know, we're going to let you go. And he said, oh, praise God. (laughs) Now I can go around and tell everybody about Jesus. And then they said, man, we really need to shut him up. Paul, we're going to kill you. (laughs) So he said, oh, praise God. To die is gain. Man, it'd be great to be killed so I could go and be with Jesus. (laughs) How do you mess with a guy like that? You can't. And that's not just because that was just Paul. Okay, the attitude that Paul had we can have that same attitude. Paul was eternally minded. Okay? The same Holy Spirit that was in Paul is the same Holy Spirit that's in you. And the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that's in you. You don't have a lesser amount. You have the same amount. So how do we start? How do I get that same amount of Holy Spirit in me? Well, it starts with making Jesus the Lord of your life. And today I want to give you that opportunity to do that. It's not complicated. And that was by design. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, you know, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead? If so, then let's simply speak it with our mouth. Repeat this after me. God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I believe he is the Christ. That he was raised from the dead. I make you the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. I receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you said that simple prayer and you meant it in your heart, you are what the Bible refers to as born again. Okay, on the inside, you're brand new. The old has passed away 
And God's spirit is in you right now. And as we speak, there's a party in heaven celebrating the decision that you just made. So I want to encourage you to share that with someone. Let someone else know that you made a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life so that they can celebrate with you. Thanks for listening and join us again next time on the Abundance Podcast.